Hello and welcome to Knitcast. I'm your host Marie Urshad and my special guest for this edition is the designer and knitting heretic Annie Modisset. Annie, I'd like to start off by talking about your knitting history. Could you uh, tell me a bit about it, about how and when you first began to knit? Sure. I was actually taught to knit by a friend in 1983 and she taught me how to do the knit stitch and then immediately I was transferred by my company to Texas and I didn't know how to purl and I didn't know how to knit very well. The fact that I was transferred had nothing to do with the fact I'd been taught to knit. So I taught myself how to purl. It was a very intuitive way but I didn't know that it was, you know, considered wrong by the mainstream knitting world. And the way that I purl is different than the way many Western knitters purl, meaning when I put my needle in the stitch and I wrap the yarn around it, I wrap the yarn over the needle, not underneath it. And it just seemed such an easy and clever way to purl, and I had nothing to compare it to. And it's also incredibly fast. So I... I had knit myself a sweater. Um, I did it in a weekend. I went to the oh, yarn yeah. shop. I bought the yarn on Friday. I knit the sweater over the weekend. And then I went back to the yarn shop on Tuesday to tell the woman that I didn't know how to bind off and I really wanted to finish the sweater. And she got really angry. I think she thought that it was a practical joke, that I wasn't being honest with her because I, I had told her it was my first sweater. And not only was it a sweater, but it was a Deborah Newton very, very heavily colored and yes. sweater. With It was beautiful. It was lovely. It's still one of my favorites. And that was my first inkling that the way that I knit must be extremely unusual if if this woman doesn't believe that I knit this sweater in a weekend. And, and, and I still do knit incredibly fast. I know. I'm very jealous, actually, because it, if I'm lucky, it will take me two weeks <laughs> to knit a sweater a weekend. That's one of the things that uh, you think if you're using a, um, you know, one, one of the chunky weight, super chunky weight wools, like a Colinette Point Five or something. But were you disheartened at all when this woman was disbelieving of you? I mean, what was your feelings about it? Because some people, that might have um, had quite a big effect on even if they knit, depending on the uh, the person. Well, I was I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s, and so... My immediate reaction was just to get really pissed off at her and leave the store, mm. which I did. So we both were unhappy with each other. And then her store closed after that. And I, I'm, I'm never happy. I was glad that woman wasn't making people feel bad anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really feel bad about my way of knitting because it was just so good. You know, my, my fabric was even. My tension was good. I was a fast knitter. It never troubled me at all until I quit my job in Texas and I moved back to New York and I was working with some other designers and I was working at Vogue Knitting briefly which which was a lovely experience and I loved being there and working with the editors there but it became very clear that the way that I knit was unusual and different and it was unfortunately I think it was considered wrong because I couldn't yeah. interpret the instructions and rewrite them for the magazine in the standard Western method of knitting. In what way was the way that you were writing the patterns different? Uh, mainly my my patterns were different in the way that I made um, decreases. The way that I would explain 
putting the needle in the front of the stitch or the back of the stitch or knitting two together because those are all different things in combination knitting. And unfortunately, I knew I knit differently, but I didn't understand the nuts and bolts of how I knit well enough to really dissect what I was doing. Um, I understood it well enough to know that I loved what I was doing and I didn't want to change it, but I didn't understand it well enough to interpret someone else's work or take my knitting and interpret it in knitting style. To me, it seems... It seems very strange that someone would say, oh, there's a right way and a wrong way to knit. Because, as, you know, as long as we're producing a knitting, a knitting fabric, that should be enough. Well, it, it, it seems strange to me, too. And I have a theory about this. And the theory is, it's all tied into, like, you know, my history as a child and, you know, my feelings about computers and all that. My theory is... The more someone understands about something, the less dogmatic they are. Meaning if someone really understands the meaning behind something, they don't care if other people get there in the same way. They just all know that we'll meet at the same place and we'll have a good time and discuss our knitting or whatever. But if someone is not quite sure how they're getting someplace, they get very dogmatic that everyone else has to go the same way. And it makes them feel more confident to see everybody else doing it the same way. Now, I mean, Western knitting is perfectly wonderful, and it's not my goal at all to ever change anyone's style of knitting. But people that I know who understand what they're doing with their Western knitting, you know, and understand how they're making the stitch and that there are like 16 different ways to make a knit stitch, people who understand that are 100% okay with me knitting differently. The people who would have the biggest problem with me knitting differently are the people who just understand enough knitting to know if I put my needle in here and do this, I'll get a stitch. But it's almost like magic to some people. And when things are almost magical, I think sometimes people don't like to examine them too, too carefully because it's like, you know, taking, taking, it's like a magic act when you're re revealing what's going on behind the magician and you're seeing what's happening in the box that's supposed to be closed. So you were revealing the trick. Yes, I was revealing the trick. And I think, um, I think people are very married to their style of knitting if they're taught by a mother or a grandmother or a family member. It's like we get very personal about the way that we cook. We feel like we should cook this way because this is how mom made this. And, you know, it never tastes the same if someone else makes it. And I think we do the same thing sometimes with our knitting. This is how mom told me to make my stitches. This is the right way. Plus, you know, sadly, we live in a culture where people do feel that there is a right way and a wrong way. And, you know, I, I worked for Martha Stewart for a bit. I worked on, as an assistant in the art department on the TV show for about two years. And what I took away from that experience is Martha is, first of all, brilliant. But she's also someone who feels that there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. And I have never really believed that. I think that there are probably wrong ways to do things, but there are probably also many, many right ways to do things. Now, you were mentioning some of the roots of combination knitting. Could you give us a very brief history of it? Sure. My understanding of the combination Western Eastern knitting matrix comes from readings I've done mostly 
from Priscilla Gibson Roberts, who is a, a designer and writer here in the States, and I, I have great respect for her. Basically, if you were to envision a map of the world and you think about all of the countries and areas that have been influenced by Northern Europe, that's where you will generally find Western knitting. When you think of places in the country that have been influenced by, let's say, the Ottoman Empire or by Spain, you will find um, Eastern knitting. And then combination knitting is sort of a mixture of the two. When you see Eastern knitting fabric, the stitches themselves are crisscrossed. It's a different fabric than many of us are used to seeing. It doesn't have the same elasticity. It's a little denser. When you see Western knitted fabric, it's what most of us are used to seeing. The loops are rather open. They're not crossed at the bottom. When you see combination knitting, it looks just like Western knitting. But we get to that point by making our stitches in a Western way and making our purl stitches in a Eastern way. So it really is a combination of the two. Some people call it Eastern uncrossed. I prefer to say combination because I think it's too easy to get the term Eastern uncrossed confused with Eastern. And it, it sounds as though it, it truly is a combination of the two. It is. And, you know, in, 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 interestingly enough, I have people write to me all the time saying, first of all, thank you so much for writing Confessions of a Knitting Heretic because finally I'm legitimized and the way that I knit is, is something I can show people and say, yes, this is a real way of knitting. But I get men who me who have family ancestry in the Ukraine or in Shanghai, specifically those two places, and they will write to me and say, "This is how my grandmother knits. This is how I've always knit." And I, you know, I'm not an anthropologist, but my my gut feeling on this is perhaps these are places in the world where you've gotten a, a, an open mixture of Eastern and Western a nice crossover between business and culture. And so perhaps you're seeing in these areas a nice mixture of knitting styles. Yes, yeah, so staying with the book, my overwhelming feel about the book is that it's, it's very inspirational in encouraging knitters not to devalue themselves and not to think, oh, I'm a beginner or I'm an intermediate, I should just stay with one kind of project, but to really have a sense of adventure with knitting and to be unafraid to try try something that's a bit different or to try... You well, know, try that, that's very kind of you to say that. That's my f whole point of the book. That's the whole reason I wrote it is because most knitters I meet are so much better than they think they are. We, you know especially women, but men too, I think that we are convinced that it's somehow attractive or considered good or modest to downplay ourselves and not, you know, not talk about how good we are at something, not, not to be prideful, to use my, my family's term. And, and, you know, pridefulness is not a good thing, but self-respect is very good. And most knitters I, need, I meet are actually very, very good, and they're better than they are. Because if you know how to make a knit stitch and a purl stitch, you can do absolutely anything in knitting that you want to do. There is nothing you cannot do if you can make a knit and a purl stitch. And that, that's, that's the pure beauty of knitting. Getting back to designing, 
How did you become a designer? How did it happen for you? Well, when I was living in Texas, and I was, you know, knitting, and I was actually rather unhappy because I'm not someone who did well in Texas. I, I like cold weather. Someone shot at the bumper sticker on my car. I didn't have blonde hair. So um, I moved back to New York City, and I didn't have a job. So I saw a sign at a yarn shop that a designer was looking for a knitter. And I contacted her, and I began doing some knitting for her. And after two or three I found myself wondering, why don't I just design stuff? Because I could design something as, as nice as she's doing. So I, I put some sketches together, and I wrote up some schematics. I, I was just kind of winging it. I didn't really know what I should do. But I, I went for, for, like, you know, total overkill. I, like, you know, major schematic, all the sizes, everything. I did a really big presentation. And I sent my sketches and the whole package into Vogue Knitting. Now, they contacted me, uh, and they were very kind. They didn't take any of the designs, but they wanted to hire me as a technical writer. So I, I was at Vogue Knitting, and I was designing, but I didn't really have you know much in Vogue Knitting, and slowly discovering that I was a bizarre knitter, and I did weird things like, I never used a cable needle, and apparently that's what everybody did. And when I purled, I purled, you know, quote, backwards. But my stitches were gorgeous. So slowly I began to realize I, I was a real, I, I was unusual. And at the same time, I was trying to design. Now, eventually it turned out I, I, I didn't stay at Vogue Knitting. I was, I was invited to leave. Um <laughs> But, you know, it was, everything's traumatic when you're in your 20s. And it was a little traumatic, but it wasn't horrible. It was, they, were, they were very kind people. So I was doing a lot of designing for other magazines and also for Vogue. And it, it was really kind of an idyllic lifestyle because I, I would um, get up in the morning, pack myself a lunch, take the train into the city. I, I lived in Brooklyn. Take the train into Manhattan. And I would just sit at a different museum every day, and I'd knit all day and eat my lunch, and then I'd knit all afternoon and come home. And it was, it was lovely. It was really a beautiful way to spend your 20s. I must say, that sounds very attractive. <laughs> I think we'd all love to do that. <laughs> it was just beautiful. I, I made friends with all of the guards at the museums so that even though I wasn't supposed to, they'd let me sit and eat my lunch because they knew I was very careful and tidy and mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't make a mess. And then I would just sit and knit, and I'd walked all over the park. And, you know, I, ironically, when I worked at Time, Inc., which was the company I worked at that had transferred me to, to Texas, I was earning a pretty good salary, you know, age. I, you know, couldn't complain. I was doing very well. When I switched to knitting for a living, I was earning about a third of what I had earned before, but I actually had a savings account. I was able to save money because I was so happy. I wasn't spending money doing stupid things. I wasn't, you know, going off and buying everything I wanted to just to make me happy. I was just deeply content and happy because of what I did for a living. For a lot of people, it would seem a bit of a, a dream to make your living through knitting. Is it something it, that can be achievable? Yeah, you know, I'm going to sound like Pollyanna. You can do anything in the world you want to do. 
I used to call my mother, and I'd be upset, and I'd say, oh, mom, I really want to be married. I haven't met anybody. And she would say, she'd say, if you want to be married, you'd be married. It was, you know, very blank, but it was true. If there's something you really want to do, you do it. You do it because there's nothing else you can do. You know, if there's something that you need to do in your life, then you find ways to do it. It just, it almost happens if you're able to open yourself up and be free enough to allow, allow these things to come to you. I was recently teaching in Maryland and a woman said to me, I really want to win the lottery because I want to spend my life knitting. And I said, you know, it's funny you say that because I feel like I have won the lottery. But winning the lottery for me wasn't, you know, something I actually became quite sick about three years ago. And when that happened, I had to stop working and I went back to designing, which I hadn't been doing for a while, but I, I went back to it full time. It was the only thing I could really do where I had a chance to work on my own schedule, take a nap when I needed to take a nap, travel when I felt like I could travel and not when someone else wanted me to travel. And because I was forced to do something that I love so much, I, I think that's where the success has come from. So if someone wants to knit for a living and wants to be a designer and they're just driven to it, they'll do it. You're not going to make a lot of money. I don't know any designer who makes a lot of money. And I might be telling tales out of school here, but in the 80s when I would design a sweater, I'd make you know a certain amount of money for the sample and the instructions, that the sample and instructions and the right to use the design forever. Nowadays, when I turn in a pattern to a magazine, you know, and we discuss the fee, the fee is roughly the same, if not a little lower, than it was in the mid-80s. And it's not because I was such a hotsy-totsy designer in the 80s that I was making big bucks. I think it's because the market is rather saturated right now with a lot of people who are designing. The more people who design, um, of course, the less the fees are going to be. You know, the fees go down a little bit. Not, you know, to be honest, that doesn't bother me because I think you need to uh, you need to stick with it and keep doing it. And I think it's lovely that there is such a diversity of designers out there. But I also feel there's going to be a little bit of a shakedown in the next few years. People who are just kind of doing this, you know, for fun, might move on to something else or find something else that's fulfilling to them. There'll be people who've stuck with it for years it again. Hopefully I'll stick with it and I'll stay, you know, a presence in knitting because I, I love it so much. It's such a vital part of my life. Um, and I don't see myself leaving knitting for an extended period like I did before. Pretty much most of the 90s, I didn't knit at all. I, I put it away. I didn't design. I didn't knit because I couldn't stand being told that I was knitting wrong and I didn't understand enough about my knitting to stand up for myself. Tokyo Magazines, last year you made the cover of Vogue Knitting with a, a very interesting garment. Would you like to tell us more about that? Yes, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it was my first Vogue cover and it was so exciting to me because not only was it a beautiful sweater and I just feel so grateful for the yarn choices and the styling choices and the model was exceptional but it was the first 
sweater Vogue had taken from me in 20 years. And my husband had started to joke that, he, you know, because I submit, every time there's a submission, I would submit, you know, a whole bunch of sketches. And I'd get them back, you know, they'd trickle in between three to six months. I'd start getting them back, you know, I guess we're not taking that, guess we're not taking that. Because, you know, that's the thing is you get one sweater accepted and that means that you've had 50 rejected. So my husband say, you know, you need to find someone to send in your designs without your name because there's some reason they're not taking your stuff. And I, I said, and I agree, that the reason that they don't take my stuff has nothing to do with me and it might not even have much to do with the design. What it has to do with is the vision of the editor for that specific issue and how they are able to fulfill that vision. And it, it's not, you know, I don't like this person, I won't take this, or I love this design, I have to have it. I think it's more, I'm trying to say this with this issue, which designs are going to help me get this message across. I guess I should talk more about the sweater itself, huh? Yes. <laughs> The sweater it uses, well, the yarn that it uses is from Lorna's Laces. And yes, it the, is. And the stitch that you use creates an incredible... Well, you look at the sweater in the picture and it looks as if it's woven, as if someone's woven the sweater rather than knitted, knitted it. How did you get the vision well, for that? It, it came from a couple of different places. One is that I, I had just recently seen a braided rag rug in a book and it was so beautiful. And I was thinking, I'd like to find a way to mimic this in knitting. And I get inspired quite often from textiles and things I see in books. Um, the second place it came from is that because I knit so different and because I'm self-taught in many of the ways that I knit, when I used to do fair isle and stranded knitting, I didn't realize that I didn't have to twist my yarn with every single stitch. I thought you always had to do that. So I would twist all of my stitches in one direction to the end of the row. Then I'd turn around and twist it in the opposite direction coming back. And it made back and it was also really beautiful on the opposite side. So I would use that quite often as, you know, just a little detail, just like one or two rows of it. And I would call it twisted float trim. Which, by the way, if anyone wants to play around with it if you do a row of the twisted float trim and use it as a turning ridge you know like to turn a hem it makes the most amazingly beautiful edging it's just lovely so putting these two things together this wacky way that I have of changing colors mixed with a braided rug and then when I wanted to do something for this you know cocoon shrug there was a bunch of ideas all coming together. One was, I want to make something that looks like a braided rug. I'd like to make something that is reversible in the sense that both sides don't look the same, but both sides are beautiful. So you don't care which side is out because you can wear it either way. And I also wanted to play around with the shape of a cocoon, something that was in a circle. These came together. You also sell patterns on your website. Is there any particular pattern that sells better than any other? Well, yes. Um, the corset pattern that I have up right now, I call it the silk-ribbed corset. It's just, it's beautiful. It's touched a nerve. People have 
been loving it and knitting it up. The whole point of my designing it was that I wanted to make a garment that was sexy and that was attractive and flattering, but that would look good regardless of what your size was. I'm not a thin woman, and I like to wear things that are attractive, and I get very sad when it seems that fashions are only for, you know, women who wear the size of my pinky. Um, I like the idea that no matter what size you are, you can still be sexy. What I tell people about the corset is, it's not going to make a size 22 look like a size 12, but it will make a size 22 look like a sexy size 22. <laughs> but that's that pattern sold really well. Does fashion ever influence your designing, or do you ever look at uh, sort of style forecasts? You know, I, I do. And that's an interesting part about being a knit designer, is that once you begin designing or working with the magazines, what they'll do is they'll send you a forecast of what they're seeing in the knitting world for the coming year, or coming two years. I look at this, and one of the dirty little secrets about designing for magazines is generally they'll send you this, this you know, packet of sketches, and what they really want is for you to turn around and basically send some of the sketches back to them only with your own swatches attached, because they're saying, this is what we want to have in our magazine. So I would get the little sketches, you know, and I would religiously kind of not copy them, but be, you know, heavily inspired and send them back, got rejection after rejection from specifically Vogue Knitting. Finally, with the cocoon sweater, I was like, you know, screw this. I'm just going to make something I want to make. And I, I drew it up, I sent it to them, and they took it. So I guess the common wisdom wasn't true in that case. I'm, I find myself much more influenced by historical fashion rather than current fashion. And I think it's because we live in a very unique time now where there, there is fashion, obviously, but you can go outside and see five different lengths of skirt and they all look fashionable and they all look good because I think women especially are trying to buy and wear things that are flattering to their own bodies, not necessarily because it's what everyone's wearing. So it's, it's a very beautiful and freeing time right now. I allow myself to be influenced by all of fashion history. If you have short, thick waist, you tend to look good if you wear something that is a little shorter. It, it, it gives you the illusion of having a waist. So I like to design jackets that are a little on the short side. And they're not flattering for everybody. You know, the one thing does not look good on every single person. But that's been the genesis of some of my most popular and some of my best designs is going back into history, especially the early 18th century, early 19th century, and seeing designs that are rather short to see if there's a, a, a way that I could use that silhouette in my knit designs. Well, you've talked about Confessions of a Knitting Heretic, but of course that's just one of your books. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about uh, some of the books that you've published? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. The thing about Confessions of a Knitting Heretic, it's a self-published book with everything that that implies, good and bad. I actually tried really hard to get a publisher to publish it, and I sent it around to a lot of different houses, and I would get very kind notes back, but always it was the same thing, which is, well, we're more interested in a book that's, you know, a little more hip or has more to do with the new knitter. They wanted me to do a book that was more like, I'm, oh, I can't believe I'm an idiot, and I can knit. 
which, which are fine books, but it's not the book I wanted to write. So I decided to publish this myself. And when I did, the reaction was extraordinary. It, it sold really, really well. And after that, I got a, a, a lot of interest in people who wanted to make these knitted millinery pieces that I do. Millinery is another word for a, a hat, basically. I call these knitted millinery and not knitted hats because you need to use millinery techniques like wiring the head size, wiring the brim. And as people began buying more and more of these patterns, I thought it would be good to put them together in a collection. So I put five of the patterns I like the best in a collection. I call it Knitted Millinery. I went out on a limb with that title. And that sold really well, too. It's shocked me how well that sold. So this past year, I had decided to work on some essays, some non-pattern pieces. And because Heretic did so well, I actually got an agent, somebody whose wife and sister had read Heretic, and, and he was an agent, so he contacted me. I, I had put some essays together on dealing with, um, dealing with grief and knitting, because in the past couple of years, I've had a couple of you know major losses. My, my brother suddenly passed away, and my mother also died not long after that. And I began writing about that, and it just seemed so self-indulgent. I would reread what I'd written, and it was okay, but I, I couldn't imagine a whole book like that. So I began chatting with um, my classes as I would teach, because I teach around the country. And I heard the most interesting stories from people about how Knitting had helped a daughter who was recovering from cancer get through her chemo. Or knitting had helped someone who just had a baby actually work through the newness and maybe even a little bit of the postpartum depression. And how knitting had just made such a difference in people's lives. So I, I invited people to write to me, send me their essays, send me their stories. And they were amazing. I got, I got over 70 of them. I chose 30 of them and I hired a copy editor and I decided to self-publish this book of essays also because to be honest at that point I felt I had so much invested in it I had made promises to the people who had sent me these beautiful pieces that if I were going to publish them I, I didn't want to turn it over to someone else and have to deal with difficulties between someone wanting to cut something that someone else felt should be in so I went through and I edited it I put all of them together in a collection that I call Cheaper Than Therapy, which is a hackneyed title, but it, it suits. And um, I published that this past September. It, it really was a labor of love all the way through. I made sure everybody who contributed got paid, paid the copy editor, paid for the printing, and I've actually broken even. So that's a, it's a big deal for me. Um, and, and that book's selling really well, too. So all of these things have been amazing educational experiences, as well as being a source of income. And they've also led to two more books. These I am not self-publishing. Uh, one of the books is through a division of Random House, a new division called Pottercraft. It's going to be coming out scheduled for fall of 2006, and it's going to be called Wonderful Wire Jewelry. It's got a lot of knitted and crocheted wire jewelry in it. Uh, the other book is going to be published through Lark Press. 
That's also coming out in the fall of 2006, and that's to be called Men Who Knit and the Dogs Who Love Them. <laughs> and it's about 30 designs uh, for men and for dogs. So there'll be a man's sweater and then a piece that goes with it for a dog, with dog sweater or a leash or a bed or saddlebags or, you know, something that would be good for a dog. Because I know so many men who knit. When I speak to them about this, what they say is um, there are there are patterns for men out there, but there aren't patterns that look like what you would find at you know Abercrombie or Banana yes. Republic or The Gap. Yeah. yeah, some some of them do look a, a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> to be honest. Well, you know, I I I can't cast this version on someone else's designs. But it's a difficult place because if you want to make a sweater that's fun to knit, you want to add a lot of details to it. And a lot of details don't look so great on a man's sweater sometimes. If you make yeah. it re really, really, really simple, it's no fun to knit. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that with this collection of sweaters, they'll be simple to knit. And more importantly, they'll be something a man will actually want to put on his body and wear out of the house. Yeah, because I... I suppose the problem is that uh, sometimes, and certainly you you hear this when you read blogs of, of people's experiences saying, well, you know, I want to knit him a sweater, but he wants something really, really plain and in grey yeah. or black. Exactly. And, and that's for, you know, for, if someone's knitting for, um, you know, their boyfriend, whatever whatever the gender of the knitter. So I, I can understand. <laughs> understand. Yeah. Some people would be looking for something a bit different, maybe. It's It's a real dilemma. Mm. It's a real dilemma. But um, both of those books that are coming out, I, uh, I'm learning about marketing slowly, and I have websites for both of them. One is menwhoknitandthedogswholovethem.com, and the other one is wonderfulwirejewelry.com. So if you go there, you can see a little peek of what's going to be in the books. So what else will be happening with you this year? Well, I'm teaching a lot, and I love that. I... I I, I say that my dance card is getting so full, <laughs> and pretty much if I just put the word out that I want to teach in an area, I get a lot of shops in the area contacting me and saying, would you like to teach here? And that's beautiful for me, because nothing for me is as inspiring as teaching. When I teach a class, I come home and I just feel like I could design anything, because that interaction with the students, it, it makes everything worthwhile. I'm working on another book. This one is going to be, it's tentatively titled Romantic Knits. I want to do a book of sweaters that are inspired by historical silhouettes and will also be really fun to knit and even more fun to wear. And I have a couple pieces I've just finished and sent out that are going to be an interweave in the next couple issues. The delightful Annie Modisette. If you're a reader of Vogue Knitting or the Welsh language magazine Golug, welcome. I hope you've enjoyed the show and will listen to previous editions as well. The next edition of Knitcast will be the first year anniversary special. That's going to be out in a week's time on Wednesday the 15th of February. But before that, the Knitting Olympics start on Friday. It's the brainchild of Stephanie Pearl McPhee, aka the Yarn Harlot, and as you may or may not know, I am the co-captain of Team Wales with Brenda Dane of Cast On. My Olympic challenge 
will be to finish the four cardigans that I currently have on the needles. They're in various stages of progress but most of them are at the beginning stages basically. So four sweaters in 16 days and you'll be able to keep track of my progress via my knitting blog. So you'll find links to that and everything else mentioned on the show at www.knitcast.com. You can email me feedback at knitcast.com. I'm Marie Urshard and that was Knitcast. Thanks for listening.